Hello and welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I'm Ben Cisneros, a trainee solicitor at Morgan Sports Law, and today I'll be hosting a special episode dedicated to concussion in sport. This time last year, we hosted a virtual conference consisting of four webinars called Head in the Game. We were joined by concussion experts, former professional athletes, sports safety campaigners and lawyers from across the world to discuss the various issues relating to concussion and sport. This episode of the podcast will draw out some highlights and key points from that event, featuring some of our very special guests, including Dawn Astle, Dr. Barry O'Driscoll, Dave Atwood and Professor Jack Anderson. We'll first touch on the effects of concussion on current and former athletes, before hearing about the risks and challenges particular to football and rugby union, and then finally considering the much-reported litigation. The issue of concussion in sport has been well publicised in recent times, owing largely to the litigation brought by former rugby players against the sport's governing bodies, and to athletes speaking out about their experiences of brain injuries. One such athlete is Eleanor Ferno, a former British skeleton racer who shared with us during the conference her experiences of the short and medium-term effects of concussion following a high-speed crash on the track. Obviously, everyone's experience of concussion is very different. Not one person has, has the same concussion as, as another. So my personal experience were short-term, it was tiredness. So I could, I could barely stay awake long enough to finish a sentence. In the early days, I was basically on and off asleep for, for two weeks, kind of all through, through the day, through the night, just, just constantly asleep. I was in a constant fog as well. So strangely, there was one point where I do remember I said to my partner, I said, look, the ha- there's a fire. The house is on fire because everything was so foggy that I thought that the, the, the lounge was full of smoke. And it was just that was just my, my brain being in a fog. And I had I had short term memory loss as well as a few long term memory changes as well. So I, I didn't know how to make a cup of tea. I had to relearn my phone number that I'd had for for twelve years. For me, it, w- it was just that my speech was very slow. I think I was forgetting kind of um, I, I wouldn't be able to finish a sentence because I'd forget I'd forget what what I was saying before I'd even get there. And then it was I was moving into kind of medium and long term. Uh, for me, the big the big one is headaches. So I, I get shocked when I'm, I'm more shocked when I don't have a headache than when I do, because I've just learned to really accept that they're part of my everyday life. And I've just kind of learned to live with that. Uh, and, and, and my memory as well. I, I try so hard to remember things and it's just nothing. It's, it's nothing like it used to be. We were also joined by Peter Robinson, whose son tragically died from second impact syndrome in 2011 after suffering multiple head injuries during a single rugby match. And he spoke powerfully of the need to raise awareness of such immediate risks of concussion. Dr. Adam White, an interdisciplinary social researcher in sport, education and health, drew a distinction between these immediate dangers and the long-term risks associated with head trauma, explaining the current state of scientific knowledge. The first thing I would say is it's important to not get too confused with the difference. Often when we start talking about the long-term effects, these can be caused with, from injuries that aren't necessarily concussions. So if we think about how sport is tackling or addressing the issue of concussion, to prevent issues like second impact syndrome, it's about making sure we remove people from play when they've suffered a concussion and, and making sure that they have that time off for, for their brain to heal as best it can before they return to, to play. But when we're looking at some of the longer term aspects, so chronic traumatic encephalopathy or other forms of neurodegeneration, some would call it early onset dementia, etc. 
it's important to differentiate that this is a related but separate issue and, and can be caused just by repetitive head impacts. So these are heading the ball in a session. You may not get concussed and you may have no symptoms or signs from that, but every one of those impacts is causing some form of insult to the brain. That will be some form of inflammation, loss of cells, etc. And so what, what we know at the moment is those repetitive head impacts seem to be our best indicator of these long-term conditions of CTE. And, and CTE particularly, that's the one that everyone seems to want to talk about. It's just a form of dementia, like Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. But so far to date, we've only seen this in ex-athletes, ex-veterans, and those that have suffered really significant domestic violence. And our only, our, our best piece of information that we have is it's those repetitive head impacts that's the cause. There's lots of critique on the concussion in sport consensus. They have a very narrow framework of what they look at. You know, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of studies on concussion, and yet they're able to narrow that down to a small few to, for, for what they look at. CT is one of the areas that they have perhaps neglected, and, and that can be seen both in terms of who they invite to, to their consensus group and how that's constructed. My perspective is that when the next consensus group happens, they will have to readdress the issue of CTE. And it's an easy one to respond to in we don't have a causal link between a concussion and CTE. But if that's what people are waiting for, then we need to reevaluate smoking and alcohol and all sorts of other conditions because we have no causal link between smoking and lung cancer. We have a pretty good idea and consensus is exactly that. It's a consensus. But we can't prove that smoking X number of cigarettes a day is going to give you lung cancer. It will for some, it won't for others. And that's the same with CTE. And we shouldn't be waiting for that definitive evidence, in my view, before we act. Because if we want that definitive evidence, we're going to be waiting another 70, 80, 90, 100 years. Because we'd have to track people from birth to death and look at a whole variety of variables. And we need to be looking at this issue. And all of the evidence suggests that it's repetitive head impacts. The consensus among neurologists and neuropathologists and pretty much every expert is that seems to be the issue. So let's start thinking about how we tackle that. Adam also reflected on the state of current policy in the UK with regard to concussion in sport and the need for greater education. The UK is a number of years behind America and we really need to, to stop being a number of years behind. We need to pick ourselves up and get on with this because all the time we're delaying, there are more and more kids, more and more athletes getting more and more issues and we can see from some of the stuff we've seen in the press most recently around ex-professional athletes, they are desperately in need of support. And I don't care who's to blame. I just care about helping these athletes. And that's the important part. I would definitely like to see a, a more consistent approach to concussion guidelines across the UK. And we should be, you know, I, I don't understand why we don't have the same thing in, in England. I don't understand why the sports and, and various other organisations are so hesitant or reluctant to do this. It's, it's been proven to work. We know it works. And this is something that the states have had for years. You know, Everybody involved in sport uh, at the NCAA level has to undertake concussion training. That's developed by the Centre for Disease Control. It's just what happens, and we need to be doing that. And not doing that is, is problematic. We, we see it as a real issue. The recent report by the UK Parliament DCMS Select Committee certainly underlines the point that Adam was making. And it must be hoped that this will push UK sports policy in the right direction. Our second webinar was dedicated to concussion in football, 
and featured the well-known campaigner Dawn Astle of the Jeff Astle Foundation, Dr. Michael Gray, a neuroscience researcher from the University of East Anglia, and FIFPRO's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Vincent Goudbarge. Here's Dawn Astle explaining her father's story and the scale of football's issue with brain injuries. It's quite easy, really. It's a huge problem in the game. You know, you you mentioned when you introduced me that my dad died uh, 19 years ago as a result of heading footballs. Um, he was diagnosed with dementia at the age of 55 and died four years later. And you're right, the coroner said it was an industrial disease. And at the time, my mum turned to myself and my sisters and said, girls, your dad can't possibly be the only one. He can't possibly be. And 19 years on, the only piece of research uh, that's been done that, that has really highlighted, you know, what a problem it is in the game was the field study, which went public in October 2019. And it showed that footballers are five times more likely to die of Alzheimer's disease. They're four times more likely to die of motor neurone disease and they're twice as likely to die from Parkinson's disease uh, than non-footballers. I'm hearing all the time through uh, the Jeff Astle Foundation families of players where they're saying you know their their dad or their husband died of dementia but there were three four five six others in the team who died as well. And I think more recently um, a newspaper looked at the cohort of top flight footballers uh, from the 1965-1966 season and they found that neurodegenerative diseases were a factor in the deaths of 42% of them which is I mean it's just horrific whether that's the same across all cohorts uh, I don't know but I doubt there's going to be a great deal of difference it's a huge huge problem in the game and at the end of the day, footballers are dying because they're footballers and, and things need to change. Dr Michael Gray also spoke about the issue of heading the football and about the current understanding of the long-term risks. When it comes to football, the issue is not so much about concussion itself. It's the repetitive subconcussive insult that occurs when heading the ball. I think concussions are probably more of an issue for children. Children, as they're learning the game, are going up for headers. They're not nearly as good as is a as is a professional, and we'll get the clash of heads, and so we'll see concussions there. The real issue in the sport with concussions is getting people off the pitch. It's not so much the long-term damage that that Don was talking about. In that context, it's more about the subconcussive insult, the repetitive heading of the ball in practice is the is is probably the bigger issue. I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. We, we don't know yet the extent of the issue. I mean, we have to be careful about how we characterize the research. There's some very good evidence for that the field study, I think, is a, is, a, is a great example of the issue in professional or former professional male footballers. We don't know if that extends to the amateur game. We don't know if that extends to the recreational game. And we don't know anything at all, really, about if that extends to women as well. I think it probably might, but there, I mean, it just, we're really at the tip of the iceberg. And there's so much more that we need to know and understand through research. Footballers do suffer concussions, though, for example, from clashes of heads. And the sport has been widely criticized for its failure to do anything 
until very recently, about the issue, and in particular for its reluctance to follow rugby's example by introducing temporary concussion substitutes. Here's FIFPRO's chief medical officer. I already mentioned that we are on a move and that stakeholders within football, whether it's uh, on domestic level or national level or international level, uh, obviously they are more aware that they have to work on uh, on the problem of concussion in professional football on both uh, recognition properly on and off field and also on the, on the management. As I already mentioned, uh, we are timidly uh, on the move but we are not stretching that far when it comes to the approach of concussion in, in football. And I look again at the uh, law of the game, which is the responsibility not of FIFA, but the IFAB. Again, uh, this additional permanent substitution this is a nice move. It does not solve the problem of uh, the time provided to the medical team to uh, assess a player on and off the field after a concussive event. Uh, so we are going to follow and evaluate this um, change in the law of the game. But we will always want to push for testing other approaches, such as in rugby, the temporary substitution. I was in favor of temporary substitution trial as well. And all other representatives from other stakeholders, they were not. So it's already difficult. The main argument to opt for an additional permanent substitution is uh, the following. Uh, namely that a temporary substitution could be misused either by the coach or the player faking a brain injury in order to have a, a performance uh, announcement uh, result of that. Well, as a representative of, of the player, obviously my first remark was uh, that it was a shame to think that player would fake a traumatic brain injury. I mean, you know, you first have to have a direct or indirect blow to the head after you have to show some the proper sign and symptoms. Come up, guys, it's different than uh, simulating, a, uh, you know, a, a penalty kick or a hamstring injury. We are talking about traumatic brain injury. And also, I think, as Don mentioned, if we educate the player about the severity that a concussion can have, that it can be very fatal, then uh, I'm sure that it was worth to explore in parallel to the uh, current permanent concussion substitution. But again, I was the single one in the group. There has also been much debate about whether football's governing bodies should introduce limits on heading the ball, owing to the concerns Dawn and Michael have explained about long-term neurological problems. Have a listen to our panellists having a debate of their own on this topic. It's the first thing they need to be doing, in, in my opinion. Only a few weeks after the field study was um, made public, the FA putting guidelines for children heading the ball, which is great, but in my opinion, it doesn't go far enough. But at the end of the day, the field study was done on professionals and 16 months on, we've still seen nothing from the footballing authorities to try and mitigate this risk. And I think limiting the amount of heading in training it's such a small achievable change. You know, it's it's reasonable, it's sensible, it doesn't change the game. God forbid we do that. But more importantly, it could save lives. So, you know, for me, that's the first thing they should be doing is definitely putting a limit on the amount of heading that's done in training. That's where the majority of, of the heading is. And I think Callan Shearer said in his documentary, for every headed goal he scored, he probably practised it a thousand times. 
I know that from the UK, there is, of course, uh, this call to reduce heading exposure in training. Yeah, I mean, I do not disagree, but from a scientific point of view, I am missing a lot of information before having a clear position that we need to reduce heading in professional football. Namely, first of all, we do not know a lot about heading exposure in professional football, in games, and nothing in, in training. In games, there is a, a very recent study conducted in the top five leagues, plus the championship in England, and the number of heading in the game per player was ranging between four and six, and it was eight in the championship. It looks like we have a, a bigger issue indeed in the lower leagues of the game. But in other countries, other continents, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at football not from a UK perspective, I'm looking from an international perspective. We don't have any clue in the Americas, in Oceania, in Asia, what is the exposure is. And we don't have any scientific data about heading exposure during training. This is my first yeah, caveat, actually. The second one is, and perhaps can Dan uh, reflect on that, and I mean, I don't know the answer, and perhaps you don't know, and I just want to pick your, your, your great mind uh, about that, but what is uh, the threshold that is safe, or where the risk is acceptable? Do you have an answer of that? And if you have an answer, are you going to be accountable to put that? That means that if a player is uh, heading less than the threshold, then he will be healthy. Are you sure about that? Who is going to take the risk? Who is going to monitor the number of heading? This is the question that I was struggling a little bit in the past eight weeks when I was drafting an editorial about this, uh, this topic, still under review, might be rejected. But I mean, I don't know the answer. I just want to hear a little bit your reflection from that. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I think Willie Stewart has, has put out some data regarding heading recently. From? I from what? Think, from... I think that was something like eight sessions of 20 minutes with yeah, two okay. days break in between. Yeah, but I mean, I saw this kind of experiment, you know, when you ask player to, to head the ball 40 times in 20 minutes, sorry, then you never played football your whole life because it is not a regular situation. Perhaps in England, I don't know, but I play in top league in France and in Netherlands. And across all the leagues, I mean, you don't hit the ball 40 times in 20 minutes. So if we want to make some uh, experimental uh, study, then we need to replicate what actually occurs, you know, in practice. And people who are designing this kind of study, I mean, they never play football, I guess, uh, from their life, because otherwise they wouldn't go with this kind of experiment. I mean, I have to agree with Vincent on, on most of what he's just said. The simple truth of is that we, we do not know. We do not know what these thresholds should be. Where I would disagree a little bit is I think the implication that because we did not do, and, and correct me if I'm wrong now, Vincent, I don't want to put words in your mouth. The implication of that is because we don't know, maybe we shouldn't be limiting. Hoping that's not what you're saying. I think we have sufficient circumstantial evidence now that limiting heading in practice is a good idea. To what extent should we, be, should we limit? I don't know. We need to really turn to our professional colleagues. But I would say, yeah, we definitely need to be limiting heading because we know it's an issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. You know, uh, of course, we need to, to be very cautious. But I feel that if you say, and I 
read that, of course, from the UK media who are suddenly epidemiologists because they are running the scientific agenda in the UK, it looks like that at least. Then um, I read that reducing heating in practice, okay, should be done. But if you don't know how much, then I said, okay, then it's a, a very popular, you know, popular things to say, but sorry, but if you don't know how many it has to be to decrease, then you don't give any practice tools, you know, to the footballer to know what they have to do within training. Uh, I mean, both should be developed in parallel. You want to reduce, you have to also guide people how much and not more than the thresholds they need to hit the ball. Let's just change the subject just for a few seconds to smoking then. There's no causal link with smoking, but we know that smokers are more at risk of lung cancer. Do they get lung cancer for smoking a cigarette this big? Or do they get lung cancer for having smoking day after day after day after day after day? Of course, but it's all about the cumulative exposure. I totally uh, agree with you, Dan. But uh, if we know that a player is allowed to head uh, the ball, I don't know, 500 times every season for maximal 10 years, oh, well, that, that could provide some clear guidance if we have some concrete data. But we do not have this kind of uh, concrete data. And it, yeah, I mean, I feel that it would be nice to give some advice to uh, coach and managers to, to make sure that they do not give exercise that players are heading the ball. Too often needs to be concrete, needs to be a number, because what is too often? It's why I, it's very difficult, you know, for me to understand also the, uh, the multidimensional of this problem. So do we not do anything then? Do we just leave them and to carry on doing what they're doing and then in another 20 years have another field study and find that they're still three and a half times more likely to die of neurodegenerative diseases and they're still five times more likely to die of Alzheimer's and they're still four times more likely to die of motor neurone disease because we can't put it concrete. I don't agree with that. There is a clear risk that it's heading the ball. A coroner, you know, Her Majesty's coroner, somebody whose job it is to find out how and why somebody has died, said the trauma in my dad's brain went from the front of the brain to the back of the brain. My dad's brain looked like the brain of a boxer. He wasn't a boxer. He was a footballer. How did that happen then? Is it because they played on grass? Is it because of the halftime oranges he ate? You've got to have some common sense with this. And the common sense is whether people like it or not, heading is the problem. Heading is causing players to die. And we have to do something about it. I think it's important that we start somewhere. No, I agree with you, Vincent. We don't have the scientific data to say conclusively this is where the threshold should be. But I absolutely think we need to put in place some guidelines. Maybe those guidelines are wrong. And as we get further evidence, we change them. But I think what we're doing now, where it's just a free-for-all, that uh, you know, some teams can head the ball and other teams can, you, you know, will not, I don't think that's the way forward. The third part of the conference was dedicated to rugby, where we heard from former and current England players Kat Merchant and Dave Atwood, World Rugby's former medical advisor Dr Barry O'Driscoll, and concussion researcher Dr Liz Williams. Here's Dave Atwood explaining a current rugby player's perspective on concussion. It's not a huge concern in the same way that players' careers after rugby aren't of huge concern to them while they're playing the game. I think the fact that it's 
something like uh, like Barry alluded to, it pervades in players after they finish playing generally. There are short-term and immediate symptoms and in the worst case scenarios, very ongoing immediate symptoms like uh, like Cat's experience. But for the, the majority of participants in the sport, the concern is actually further down the line. And because of the kind of the gap in immediacy of, of perceiving these effects and participating in the sport, there's a very diminished degree of responsibility felt by the players in terms of managing themselves, in terms of discussing it, raising awareness. It's a, a little bit like this this problem doesn't feel like it affects me, so why why should we really pay too much attention to it? What I will say is it's very noticeable how when someone in your squad is affected by it quite dramatically and you see that we had, uh, unfortunately, we, we had a player last year at, at Bristol who was forced into, into early retirement, citing concussion as a, as a primary reason. That stimulates a bit of conversation, but it's still a little bit kind of third party. It's like they've got a problem, natter, 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 rather than we've got a problem, let's talk about it. Rugby has been applauded in some circles for its handling of concussion. Having introduced pitch-side head injury assessments and temporary concussion substitutes, but Dr. Barry O'Driscoll was critical of the existing measures. We know the second injury is much worse than the first. We know knocks on the head, which don't cause concussion, if you haven't been off long enough with the first, is going to do brain damage. But it's not in a commercial club's interest to say, no, you have got to be off for four weeks. I was at World Rugby, and it was the start of my dissolution in a way, but in 1977, a, a New Zealand a neurosurgeon came to a, a big conference on rugby and said, listen, we've got to keep these people head injury off. What about three weeks, right? So that was the scientific basis for making it three weeks. I'll admit that. Then it came the game going professional, and it was out of question to be three weeks. So they came up with seven days with no scientific basis for it whatsoever. The basis was that player would be able to play the following Saturday. And when I actually resigned, they brought in this the world championship in, in, in South Africa, the under-20 world championship, and we know that adolescents, their, brain, their brains are more sensitive and more vulnerable. They said, let's experiment by taking them off for five minutes if they appear concussed and doing the most ridiculous things like saying, how many fingers and that am I holding? And then putting them back on. So we'd gone from three weeks, ridiculous, to five minutes. And shortly after that, I left. They've got to stay off longer and we've got to reduce the impacts. We've got to do everything we can. My problem with the head injury assessment is that you cannot rule out concussion in 10 minutes. Quite a few symptoms and signs of concussion appear after some hours or maybe that night or maybe the following day. So you cannot say to a player, and it's medical legally, this is going to be a problem. You are not clear. You are in the clear to go back and have a further knocks to your head. Again, when it came in 2015, I did contact World Rugby about it again, and I was told by the chief medical there and by the chairman that we've made it 10 minutes because tactically it will be manipulated if we leave it longer. Now, that, that is frightful, isn't it, really? You know, 
Anyway, we think we can give them a full examination and clear concussion in 10 minutes. The say the regulation since 2012 has been if you have signs or symptoms or you suspect a concussion in a player, you suspect it, you come off and you don't have a HIA, you stay off. And that's still it. So who are all these people are doing the HIA on? They're not, they're not suspected of having concussion. Uh, it's so confusing for the doctors and the players and everybody. If you suspect concussion, you cannot go back on. And that's written in the regs. So they say, well, it's a potential concussion that we do it on. A potential concussion, I'll ask, I'll ask David. Every, every, every line out and scrummy goes into is a potential concussion. You know, it, 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 they, they, they're contradicting themselves and, and they're asking for trouble. They've got to take off the cosplayer and leave him off for the set time. Barry and Dave also discussed the possibility of making changes to the laws of the game to make rugby safer. The game that Cat uh, played and certainly certainly the game that, um, that David played, it's a different game to the game I played when I played international. I, I mean, now I won't be allowed on as a water boy in case someone stood on me. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's these, these are big, big people. And this is on so much work on the impact and the rotational impact when they hit people. And that is completely different from in my day. So what can we reverse that? Well, we can't really. We can't say that uh, put a, a weight limit on it. Although in New Zealand for many years, the schools, they, they did it by weights. So. We must reduce the impact, so we can't change the size and other players, but there's a little, quite a lot in the laws that we can do. Having done all that, if someone still gets concussed, then we're absolutely regular and consistent as to the way we look after them, because we, say, we know that in the vast majority of cases, their brain is altered, is damaged for two or three weeks, even with uh, the, the minest of uh, the uh, least of their uh, concussions. There's too many people on the field to start with, and at the moment now they're all lining up across the field. They don't they don't go into uh, rooks and walls that that much, and they run at players, not for the for the gap which existed when I played. So we've got to reduce that congestion there, and maybe uh, I mean they may be something like bringing in the 2014 rugby league, although the, the lads at, at, at Twickenham that wouldn't like to do anything that uh, was rugby league. It's where, the, where, where you can bounce the ball into touch. Therefore, the opposition has to stand back, so it reduces that congestion. I've reduced it. Dave would probably kill me for this, but the pack, the pack by one and make it, it have no number eight. <laughs> uh, uh, so less, less, less congestion and the impacts. And uh, David, his, his views on this, the way the rooks are now refereed, and the referees themselves will say... They're allowing all these things to happen. There's one very good thing that rugby's done in the last season or so is uh, taking people's heads directly with your shoulder and, and that that can be done. The head impact in training should be reduced and they're doing their best to reduce the head impact as far as, as, far as possible. We can't go a lot further because of the integrity of the game, but I think that go at it both ways. I really agree with Barry in terms of the, the focus that the laws have put on specifically in terms of contact and reckless contact to the head. And we've seen the, the, the sanctions in terms of sighting hearings and stuff like that go up set at mandatory levels with regard to contact to the head. I think that it's 
encouraging that the sport is trying to change behaviours around direct contact to the head. I think that it is one of the biggest things for me that I feel has always been kind of a negative side of rugby is people charging into clear rucks with a tucked shoulder. And I think that it's it's something that the last few weeks particularly have seen a lot of referees and panellists talking about this alteration to the rule. But I think that's one of the biggest things. Because for me, Barry's kind of alluded to a few times in that what we talk about as concussion isn't the whole issue. So if you imagine kind of the scale of nothing, you're a normal person wandering along in the street and 10, your head's been run over by a bus and your brain's flat and mushy on the floor, you experience the symptoms of what we characterise concussion somewhere along that scale. But your brain is being injured, the, the term Barry used there, sub-concussive incident. So your brain is being injured long before you start to exhibit immediate, oh, I'm dizzy or I'm out cold or I can't remember what day it is. There's injuries going on to the brain at that. And that doesn't necessarily involve head contact at all. If you imagine what's going on in your head, the rotational force exerted on your, on your skull that means that your brain twists and your, your cortex gets pinched and you, the lights go out, that doesn't necessarily involve head contact at all. So for me, it's difficult to really engage with much more alterations to the rules before we have got more information about the actual mechanisms involved behind what's causing the damage, but also what that damage means. I just wondered while Dave was speaking there to ask him, at the top level now in uh, Premiership and that, has to, our training now, Dave, over the last two or three months or since the litigation was started and various things like has there been any effort to uh, reduce impact on the head in training? It's a, it's a really interesting point you, you just raised that. I think directly, no, but indirectly, yes. And I say that because there's a large movement by the... The, the players' union at the minute to try and make some measure of restriction in terms of the amount of contact, which through extension obviously involves contact to the head. There's no emphasis at the minute on reducing actual head contact. We're usually very cautious. No one really wants to clash heads with people anyway, but at the minute, we don't perceive concussion as a distinct increased liability as opposed to other forms of injury. Like our, our restriction on contact training is more driven by general injury because it's far more likely that we will receive a, a shoulder dislocation or a broken rib, twisted ankle, than it would be to a concussion. So that's, uh, I certainly, I safely say from Pat Lamb's point of view, when we reduce the amount of contact we do, it's to try and ensure that we don't pick up injuries in, in that regard rather than to reduce concussion. Well, since the conference, World Rugby has announced that it will be trialling several law amendments, including the 50-22 kick alluded to by Barry, 
and also that it will be taking a specialised approach to and conducting further research on the women's game. Here's Dr Liz Williams discussing concussion in women's rugby. The more we research the women's game, the more we find those differences. But it's not restricted to rugby because you know, studies that have been done you know, in the early 2000s by Stemper and colleagues in the States reported on significant differences in the spinal anatomy, physiology and stability between males and females. There's been stats out for quite a long time about how women are 17 more likely to die in a car crash. Women are far more susceptible to whiplash injuries. So those are sort of in the context of of vehicle crashes. But you take those same findings sometimes the rugby context, and it just it makes you question how women are responding to rules or regulations, return to play protocols, injury identification protocols that are purely based on male data. So so far. What we've seen just at the lower level, at the university level, is the mechanism of head impact is considerably different between men and women at the university level. From video analysis, so without sensors, we've found that as you go up the world rankings, the women's table, those head-to-ground impacts get less, but they're still higher at black firms in England level than they are in the university men. So I think given that most women who play rugby aren't black firms or England players, that that whiplash mechanism, particularly head to ground or head to knee, head to head, uncontrolled whiplash and uncontrolled falling is something that we need to take seriously really, really soon because, yeah, a lot of those women, the majority of our players, there wasn't rugby for them throughout high school. So if they played as kids, they played in mixed teams, but then they turned 11 and it was either playing the under-18s or don't play. A lot of them opted for the latter picking it up again at, at university. So you get to 18, you're an adult, you've missed out on all those like motor skill development, how to fall, how to handle your body in space. So to compare the men's and the women's university teams, for example, in terms of the head impact kinematics, you're not just looking at male versus female responses to these same things. You're looking at two completely different populations of people. So one group are effectively novices, the other group are, you know, semi-professional that have played since they were five years old. So there's a number of issues, both physical and social, which are contributing to these massive differences that we're seeing between two teams of people with the same sort of background, as in same age, same, you know, they're all from somewhere, England, Wales, somewhere, but massive differences in, well, their neck strength for one and how they obtain these head impacts for another. So I don't think that rules... And some piece of equipment, return to play protocols, injury identification, so from video, can really be safely applied to the women's game. I think we know that those physical differences exist. They're really well established in a number of studies. And so we need to actually get that information and bring it into the rugby context and say, okay, so how do we train women as women, not as like small men or as, you know, abnormal men or you know, men being the um, the default human and train them effectively based on the weaknesses that we know that they have. Or well, not even weaknesses, that's a bad word, but differences. So particularly in the cervical spine. I think we need to learn more. So I think that if we have a research investment into the woman's going to understand the fundamentals better, because, you know, we've taken all the literature we can find about, you know, vehicle crashes, about I mean, there's no female crash test dummy, but try to, you know, put that together in a context of what we're seeing and measuring in, in rugby. 
But then, you know, there's there's the neurology differences. You know, there's there's teams now, the Women's Brain Project being one, Pink Concussions being one, where, you know, people are reporting differences in the physical structure of axons in the brain and, you know, saying that the women's axons are more susceptible to mechanical damage given the same, you know, comparable biomechanical forces. So there's that, right? And then there's reports of women taking two to three times longer to recover from a brain injury than men. So return to play. I mean, can we apply the same rules to women given that there are physical differences, structural differences within the brain? You know, then there's the hormonal differences. So what at what stage of the menstrual cycle you're at when you get your concussion? There's a big research project in New Zealand at the moment about that and, and you know how the severity of the concussion and the and the longevity of those symptoms or how long they persist based on what stage of the menstrual cycle you were in when you actually got hit. So that you know that's not an issue in men, so it hasn't really been looked at. So um, and those are just that's not even scratching the surface, you know. And then you've got all the sociology parts of it, you know, like what were those girls doing when those boys were learning how to fall? Because the boys tend to fall like experts, well, for the most part. The girls, some of them are. There's probably about three or four out of out, you know, every fifteen that I've seen that fall like, well. I don't want to say like a man, but the more typically male falling patterns. And but most of them don't. Most of them just seem to fall and smack their heads in the ground. This is at the university level I'm talking. So I'm not talking about the cat merchants of the world. This is just the level that we've been looking at. The other thing that's really been clear to me is the disparity in medical provision. And that's come really strongly in the global survey that we've just finished, where even at sort of second tier down from the national team, where's the doctor? Like, you know, where's the the doctor with a particular expertise in recognising brain injuries. In the final part of the conference, we heard from various experts about litigation and concussion. We heard from former Canadian rugby international Jamie Cudmore about his own claim against a former club in France, as well as from lawyers explaining the basis of the various well-publicised cases. Here's Tom Mountford, a barrister at Blackstone Chambers, explaining how the reported group litigation against rugby's governing bodies will be brought in the UK. It's really interesting because in the UK legal system, we don't have the same kind of mass tort uh, group personal injury litigation that you've seen in the US, uh, for example, the NFL case, where effectively claims in those and other jurisdictions can be brought on on, on effectively a sort of basis where a single claim can be taken to represent the interests of a whole class, whether or not they've they've been signed up. Now, I may be oversimplifying the rules, procedural rules in those jurisdictions, but the, the UK procedural landscape for bringing these claims it, it, it is a bit different. There are things which we'll perhaps we'll come on and talk about in a bit more detail later. Mechanisms for the courts in the UK to determine these claims, so-called group litigation. Uh, and w- what that really means is where a claim is brought by multiple claimants but they raise common issues what the court doesn't want to have is to have lots of different claims going on before different judges which could produce conflicting and contradictory results so there are procedural mechanisms in the UK of now trying to group those claims together and we've seen over the last decade a real increase in the number of those claims that are coming to court and the sophistication with the way in which those claims are being put together, together with litigation funders who sometimes provide the necessary uh, resources to allow groups of claims to get together with a, one or more solicitors' firms and to then take those actions before, before the court. So I, I wasn't surprised to hear it. I think it's an interesting development and I think it's representative of, of, of what we're going to see more of in the UK. 
what the sort of procedural mechanisms in, in the UK courts try to do is they try to group all of these claims together and say you've all suffered individual injuries or, or potentially suffered individual injuries. And they, those happen at all different times and all different circumstances. But there's this common issue here, common legal issues, common factual issues, and those are going to be essential elements of each of your claims. And so we're going to corral them together. What normally happens then is that the court will, once it's put them into the mechanism of a group litigation structure, it will go ahead to a to a trial, which will determine all of those common issues, but it won't try and determine all the individual issues. It won't try and determine causation in each case. It will try and determine the common issues. It might try to determine a sample of the individual issues. And then the, the expectation is that the decision on the common issues and the decision on any cases which have been sampled on individual issues will then allow further stages of the litigation to go ahead or indeed for the parties just to reach a consensual settlement based upon the guidance of what the outcome of the, the first stage of litigation has shown. We then spoke to Andrea Lambert, an attorney at Holland and Knight in the US, about the NFL litigation, which famously settled for a billion dollars. So specifically about the, the NFL lawsuit, there's a long storied history with Will Smith in the concussion movie to the discovery of CTE to this kind of really like big tobacco-esque cover-up that was alleged. And so that case, the actual claims at issue were that the NFL failed to take reasonable actions to protect the players from the chronic risks created by concussive and subconcussive head injuries but also that the NFL fraudulently concealed these risks from players. So this is different than the sort of individual lawsuit saying, okay, you know, in 1962, you didn't warn me that CTE is a thing. Well, in 1962, no one knew that CTE is a thing. But in the NFL lawsuit, these players were saying, okay, you knew this and you fraudulently concealed it from the players and they were injured because of that. And they also talked about how the NFL culture glorified violence and encourage these players to play despite head injuries, which I think is something that's been talked about in all of the panels. You know, there's a responsibility of the athletes and the coaches and the systems to all make sure that we're really considering these issues and not sort of getting wrapped up in, okay, well, but I want to go back in the field. That's great. But if you have a concussion, you shouldn't be back on the field. And so in the NFL lawsuit, the class consisted of former players and former players' spouses, especially if they had already tragically passed away. And they asked for declaratory relief, basically saying the NFL did all these things, for medical monitoring to assess their injuries going forward, and monetary damages. And so the monetary damages is the really big piece that gets gets the news on this. And again, that's kind of where I think a lot of people just saw dollar signs, because the NFL, like you mentioned, is a huge business, multi-billion dollar business. They've already paid out, I think, something like 700 and some million dollars in claims. So there was a potential money pot that was very large. And then we'll get a little bit, I think, more into this later. But the NFL settlement, which ended up coming about because of a lot of the challenges that they faced in proving the standard of care, in asserting the actual causation, and even though we've seen these in the media in actually proving this fraud, Right. I mean, it's a lot it's a lot easier to dramatize it and put it into a movie than it is to find that one smoking gun email that says we know that these effects happen, but we're not going to tell them. And so, you know, they ended up settling, which we can get into a little bit more. But there's a lot of challenges that they actually want to proceed. 
And so the settlement was really the best from both sides. The NFL needed to settle because of this terrible publicity, frankly. And they couldn't really afford to take all of these to, to trial. But on the other hand, for class action litigation, in the U.S. at least, it never goes to trial. You're always aiming for a settlement. And the players they wouldn't have been able to get past certain motions regarding their collective bargaining agreement, regarding other legal, legal problems such as causation. How would each player, I think at the end of the day, there was over 3,500 former players who were involved in the class. How is each player going to prove that their ultimate injury was caused by, specifically by the NFL, by concussions? Especially, you know, some of these players played years and years ago. The concussion may have not been diagnosed ever. There may not be a single record. They may have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, which presents very similarly to CTE. You can't diagnose CTE in living people. So people are claiming CTE, but they're still alive. How does that work? So there's a lot of, you know, sort of issues that I think definitely need to be considered in this next group litigation. But at the end of the day, you know, those players in creating this giant class action were able to get the media attention. They were able to make some policy changes and going forward, make the game safer. Having heard about how concussion litigation has played out in the U.S., Take a listen to Professor Jack Anderson of Melbourne University explaining the legal basis for the claims in England and Wales. In straightforward terms, we have primarily a negligence case against uh, World uh, Rugby and also the uh, other named uh, Rugby Union. But there are, as uh, I think um, uh, Tom mentioned, there's two elements to it. There's not just this compensation element to it, but there is also this idea that in the shadow of litigation, we can make the sport better through various rule changes. So there's the, there's the, those two elements. Primarily then from the kind of legal perspective, if we deal with this tort of negligence, the whole gist of negligence is that the potential plaintiffs, claimants have suffered some damage. And the damage in question here is chronic neurological trauma as a result of playing the sport in, in question. And we've heard already about you know, the, the, the medical developments with regard to the diagnosis of CTE. The first kind of key question is, and it seems an obvious one, but does an entity like World Rugby owe the players a duty of care? Now, it's, it, seems, it seems pretty obvious, and it seems pretty straightforward that a World Rugby would have a duty of care to ensure that the sport could be played as safely as possible. But the duty of care issue has gone through some complexity in litigation. And the interesting thing is, World Rugby, or at least its previous iteration, the IRB, we've been here before, and we've had an Australian High Court case called Agar and Hyde from earlier this century with regard to safety in the scrum law, whereby a number of players suffered catastrophic injuries as a result of um, collapsing the scrum. And the case was taken against the International Rugby Board because of this duty of care to ensure that the, the, the laws of the game would be updated safely and monitored and, and that. And what the High Court said is, for various reasons, a duty of care wasn't owed because of the nature of the then IRB and their relationship with everyone who plays the game. I'm not so sure that authority holds. And therefore, I think World Rugby would have a duty of care here. And I think that World Rugby would want a duty of care in the general sense with regard to what they do you know so 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 that's an important issue 
And then we get into the heart of the issue is whether or not there has been what's called a breach of that duty of care. At the time of the injury sustained by the players in question, was there a lack of reasonable care exerted towards these players? And that, that comes in many guises, in, in guises of rule changes um, by World Rugby, but also in terms of the protocol, the HIA protocols, etc., that were in place at the time. And I think an interesting thing that we must think of in this is, and it, it probably applies presently as well, is are the protocols that were in play with regard to HIA's return to play, et cetera, were they fit to pur- for purpose at the time? And were they complied with at the time? They are two interesting kind of questions. So you have the protocols, were they complied with? But for, more fundamentally, were they fit for purpose at the time? And the interesting thing for the, the present case that we're talking about is that when the TOR courts look at these instances, they don't look at what we know now. They, it, it's hindsight, and I think Adrian spoke about this, it's hindsight rather than foresight. So the issue is, was reasonable care exerted by the rugby authorities towards the players at the time? Now, what was interesting in comparison with the NFL is this concealment issue. Does that apply to world uh, rugby? They will say absolutely not. But the the issue then becomes the compliance with the protocols on a day-to-day and and, and match basis. Those kind of issues in in question. And it it also brings up interesting things about the medical records that were kept at the time, etc. And it also brings up really interesting issues about club doctors and their liability and their role, which is, which is an interesting one, and it's not as, as clear, uh, clear cut as well. And then when you have those two those type of issues, the duty of care, the breach of duty, we, we go on to the causation issue, which uh, Adria has, has spoken about, which is a, 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 you know, a tricky issue because as lawyers, you look at the causation issue slightly different from what we would normally look at a causal issue. And this idea of that reaching back 20 years, was the playing of your game the causal factor in what you are suffering now? And in between that, may there be others? And the interesting point is that it is up to the players to prove the causation issue. And that brings a, a significant burden in itself. And, and that sounds harsh, but that, that, that's an interesting issue. And then the last issue, the extent to which we can go into this is, is interesting, is the possible defences the assumption of risk. But can you consent? Can you assume the risk of brain injury? Can you assume the risk that when you started playing the game, that later on you would suffer chronic neurological trauma? Is, is that something that we can, is that something that you can honestly argue as a defense that you know, the players assume the risk? Now, what's another interesting thing is this, what's called contributory negligence which is, again, a a broader point, but with regard to players and players playing on despite what they've been told, that remains a current issue. In in fact, if you look at the British Journal of Sports Medicine, there's just been a recent survey of current rugby league players in Australia and the NRL where one in five of them admit to not reporting properly on having suffered a concussion. And I think that that's an interesting issue. And that's an interesting issue that this litigation 
tries to resolve as well, that as a sport as a whole, all of us need to face up to our responsibility. So that's the general issue with regard to negligence and improving this game that we all love. With all that in mind, what is the likely outcome of the rugby cases? Well, as Jack explains, a settlement may very well be on the cards. If you look at it from, and you break down the constituent parts of negligence, there are difficulties for the players from duty of care to causation. There are difficulties in surmounting the, the hurdles that will be posed by that. And they will, they will be difficult cases to sustain in terms of bringing together all the scientific evidence as well. And there will be costs associated with that. But equally, there is an interesting point, and this has come up here in Australia with the AFL, where former players have taken and begun to initiate a class action. Many of these former players are very well known to the general public as are some of the rugby players in question here. And therefore, if you think about it, that a former World Cup winner or whatever is going to be going up these steps, of course, with the coverage that that will get, with the evidence that then will be brought out in open court, and then is there going to be a motivation to settle? Or is litigation working it out the best way to go? And are there alternatives? And we've already seen in the NFL, in the NCAA and in ice hockey and here, you know, here in in Australia as well, we're beginning to think of other ways of dealing with dealing with this issue, whether or not it is through insurance, whether or not it is getting players associations on board in terms of um, trust funds. There are different ways of looking at it because ultimately with the vast majority of the players in question, I would imagine all the players in question, the issue is about medical care and costs. And second of all, the issue is about raising awareness that as past players, they owe a duty to current players and future players to ensure that their game can be played as safely as possible. So that's the context of it. You know, we can talk about the narrow kind of legal issues, if, if you like, but uh, well, I think it's important to see that a settlement may benefit all parties and may benefit the sport uh, um, itself. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to hear more from our fantastic conference guests, including Jamie Cudmore, Cat Merchant, Dr. Stephanie Adams and Peter Robinson, please do head to www.morgansl.com for the full-length recording. Thank you very much to all of our guests for their contributions and to you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Morgan Sports Law and for articles about athletes' rights issues, please visit our website. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, or if there are any topics you would like to suggest for a future episode, please email us at podcasts at morgansl.com. And finally, please do connect with us on social media at Morgan Sports Law, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook, for articles, updates and news. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again soon.